All right, let's go over to John chapter number 7 again this morning. John chapter number 7. And I want to draw your attention today to verse number 28. And we'll pick up where we've left off in our study of John. John chapter 6. Did I say 7? Off to a good start, aren't I? John chapter 6. Sorry, verse 28. John 6. We're in Romans chapter 7, though. That's right, isn't it? We're in Romans 7, right? Okay, John 6, verse number 28. Jesus continuing this conversation with uh, many are believed to be the religious leaders, the Jews of the day. He's continuing this conversation with them about uh, their questions regarding him and why they're following Jesus. And he gave them last week this final thought we looked at about laboring not for the meat which perishes, but to labor or to look for the meat that endures unto everlasting life. And Jesus is beginning this process of, again, reminding them of what matters the most. In verse 28, they respond to his statements in verse 27 by saying, Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. They said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou then, that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? Our fathers did eat manna in the desert, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you, that ye also have seen me, and believe not. Notice that expression in verse 28 and the question that they ask him. It says, then they said unto him, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? That we might work the works of God. We'll deal with that question in just a moment. But then also, again, look over at verse 35 and notice what Jesus said. I am the bread of life. All of us this morning would agree with this statement, at least I trust that we would, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Within that statement, we have a completeness in it. In other words, the Lord, Jesus Christ, is the one who came into the world to save sinners, to completely save them. Jesus Christ alone came into this world to completely save or to completely redeem sinners. What does that statement tell us about the Lord? That tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ has the supply and the ability to meet the need of all who come unto him. When Jesus makes the statement that I am the bread of life, he is essentially talking about something that there is an endless supply of. In other words, he says, I am the bread of life. I am the supply that will continue to be available. I am that bread. Remember the connection between the bread of life and the feeding of the thousands. That, that loaves were multiplied. The fish were multiplied. There didn't seem to be an ending to the supply because there wasn't any. If thousands of more people had come, then thousands of more would have been fed. 
If a million people would have come to Jesus when that bread was being multiplied, millions of people would have been fed bread. I've heard people today, the, the modern thought is, is and it, it becomes almost ridiculous. Well, Jesus fed 5,000. If he was a God, couldn't he have done much more than that? Well, certainly he could have done much more than that. He could have called one million people and he could have fed them all with just those loaves of bread that he had. And it's by taking and remembering and keeping that story in mind when Jesus makes these statements about, I am the bread of life. If you try to preach this without the context of why the bread matters, this verse and this, these verses fall apart. They don't make sense. Why would Jesus call himself something so common? Why would he use something so ordinary as bread? You know, there's not much, many more foods that are more ordinary than bread. Bread is very ordinary. I know there's elaborate breads now and there's ways that you can make it, but it's ordinary. Jesus, when he says, I am the bread of life, he's saying something much more than just saying I'm ordinary. He's saying, I am the perfect supply. I am the bread of life. Remember, Jesus is having a dialogue between himself and the people. He's having a conversation between himself and the religious leaders. In our text, beginning here and really throughout the end of this chapter, what we see happening here is we clearly see the work of God. What about this work is so important? Well, again, notice the question that they ask him. First of all, we see that their question was flawed from the beginning because they say, what shall we do? That's the greatest flawed question that any man can ask regarding their salvation. What shall I do? Or what needs to be done? What can I provide? What can I supply? The answer to that question is we all know that today. There, there is no supply. There's nothing that I can provide. There's nothing that I can do. So we know that their question is flawed from the very beginning. And notice the focus is on themselves. What shall we do that we might work the works of God? It's almost a foolish question. What could we do that would equate to the works of God? Well, the answer to that question this morning, we all know that, is, is what? Nothing. There's nothing you could do. But yet, this question is, again, man-focused. It's man-centered. In other words, they're not just saying, what is the work? They're asking this question, what's, the most, what's acceptable to you? What could I do that you would accept it as a work of God? Now, what do you think they expected Christ to say here? You ever ask, have you, well, sure, we've done this. Have you ever asked somebody a question and expected the answer? You, here's what I think they're going to say. Have you ever asked somebody a question and they responded the exact way that you thought they would? Sometimes it happens. Sometimes they give you an answer that's opposite of what you thought they were going to say. We've all experienced that. But what do you think they thought he would say? So put yourself in these religious leaders of the day and these Jewish leaders and think about what they were looking for. I would dare say that the answer they receive is not the answer they thought they were going to get. In other words, here's an example of where they thought they were going to get one answer and Jesus gave them another. Notice he says, Jesus answered and said unto them, this is the work of God. In other words, he, he singles it out and he simply says, this is the work. The greatest, the best, 
the most acceptable work in all the world is this, that ye believe on him who hath sent, who he hath sent. Now, before we get the idea that he's telling them that belief is a work, that's not what he's saying at all. He's pointing them to the reality that there are no human works that, they could, be, that could be done that would be acceptable. I dare say, and I'm, I'm speculating a little bit here, that the Jews may have thought that he would say, here's a list of things that you can do to be acceptable with God. I expect that's what they were looking for and they didn't get that. Instead, they get this answer that the most acceptable thing you can do is believe. The most acceptable thing you can do is believe on him who he has sent. What does it mean to believe? Belief is not just an intellectual assent to a conclusion. What belief is, is a coming to and a trusting in. When I believe in something, I come to it and I trust in it. It's not just some kind of intellectual assent where my mind says, well, here's a conclusion. Instead, I trust and I come to that. In this case, it's coming to Christ. Remember, they had been seeking for Jesus. We saw this in the previous verses last week. They were coming to Jesus, but they were coming to Jesus for the wrong reasons. They were coming because they wanted their stomachs filled, not because they wanted eternal life. I mentioned this during the devotion this morning. An unbeliever could have looked out at that sky last night and say these words, I believe that God did that and not be a believer in Christ. Okay? Somebody could have stood out there and looked at that sky and said, I believe a God created that and yet still be dead in their trespasses and sins. Believing that God has done something does not equate to a belief or a coming to or a trusting in Christ. You know, many people believe in God. Believing in God alone as an entity or that God does things is not saving grace. A lot of people believe in God. But what these individuals were doing, and as we see this, is Jesus is dealing with something quite different. He's dealing with faith. He's all but telling them, it is belief that saves you, nothing else you can do, nothing work. Notice he says, this is the work of God. It is a singular work. That doesn't mean that God doesn't do other works. It just means in this case, he's telling them that the only thing acceptable in this case, there's one work of God, and that only work of God is faith. Faith is the greatest of all grace that God gives. Faith is the essence of the requirement of true worship. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Faith is a gift of God. Faith is acceptable worship. You couldn't look out on that sky last night and worship a God that you have no faith in. But if I have faith, belief, a coming to, a trust in Christ, now I have the essence of true worship. Apart from that, I'm lacking something. The man who believes and believes that Christ has done all is more pleasing to God than anything else in the world. 
When a man or woman says, Jesus Christ has paid it all, Jesus Christ has done it all, I believe he is the Son of God, I believe he is the Messiah, I believe he is the Savior of the world, I believe he came into the world to save sinners like me, that is the most pleasing thing that a person can ever do. But the reality here is, is that this is not the level that they're on. This is, they are still thinking intellectually and they're still thinking with their physical need of hunger. They're still considering that Jesus is talking about being physical bread. And of course, that's not what he's talking about. Verse 30, we see that this questioning gets more shameful. Now, shameful from the standpoint that Jesus just gives them and declares to them the greatest truth they're going to hear all day. Greatest truth they're ever going to hear in all their life. And instead, they revert back to really another foolish question. They said, therefore, or as a result of his statement to them to believe, what sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? Notice it's a number of questions. What signs show us? Has Jesus given them signs already? Of course he's given them signs. He multiplied the bread. He has performed miracles. He's done so many things that have already showed who he is, yet they say, we need another sign that we may see. Notice that phrase, that we may see. That's the epitome of the human emotion and the human intellect right there. In order for me to believe you, I need to see this. Now, there's two things here. Number one, Jesus has already seen, he's already performed miracles. We know that. And Jesus has already made himself visible to them. They've already seen the work of God. They've already seen God face to face. They've seen Jesus. They're standing talking with the Savior of the world, and yet they still lack faith. He's already shown them miracles. He's already given them signs. Yet, we still have this Shameful questioning that says, what else can you do? In essence, that's what they're saying. What else can you do and what dost thou work? In other words, what have you done, Jesus? What have you done? The work, work the works of God. If men are to serve God, if men are to be of God, their first calling is to believe in Christ as Savior. If you're here today and you say, I want to do the work of God, the very first anything you can do for God, the very first call to you is to believe in Christ as your Savior. Apart from that, there is nothing. Notice how this conversation continues. Our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. These Jewish leaders knew all about God providing manna for their fathers. Any of you have family stories that have been carried down throughout the generations that people have told the story over and over again and people have said this happened and this happened? They had those generational stories, but they also had the scriptures that told them our fathers ate manna. Manna is a, is a form of bread. We ate, they ate bread in the desert. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Believing that Christ, here's what they're doing, believing that Christ might be similar to Moses in some way. We see that all the way back uh, in, in verse 14. 
um, when it says, then those, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, this is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. The idea here is, is they're believing, okay, Jesus is similar to Moses. He's like one of the prophets. So what were they doing? Jesus worked some miracles like Moses did. Now, if we were to, to compare and contrast the great works that God did during Moses' time of leading the children of Israel, I think we would all agree that probably the greatest work that they ever saw was the Red Sea crossing, right? I mean, we, we're familiar with that. We say the greatest thing they must have ever seen is standing there trapped by the Egyptian army, can't go left, can't go right, can't go straight, can't go backwards, and the Red Sea parts open. If you'd have been standing there that day, you would have had to have declared that must be the greatest work that God's ever done. And that would be the human response. We would respond the same way. There's no question about it. But they're referring to another miracle. Manna from heaven. Now remember, if you disconnect, if you disconnect Jesus Christ from the Old Testament, you're lost here. Okay? If you think that manna was not a picture or a type or a pointing to Jesus Christ's declaration that I am the bread of life, you miss the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That manna was not just, hey, I can only give the people of Israel what's convenient and ordinary. I can only give them manna. No, there was a connection between the supply that they needed in the Old Testament of the manna and Jesus Christ being the supply for the bread of life. This is not a coincidence. It's really quite remarkable that they're speaking with their own testimony. Oh, yes, we remember God provided manna. He provided bread. He gave them the bread of, that they needed, the bread that sustained them. And notice how it's referred to. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Simply identifying that this bread was given by God. Everyone who ate of that manna would have said, this is a miracle. This is a miracle of God that we're eating. But then notice, Jesus, as he continues this question, and deal with these questions, he continues to point them to something higher and better. One of the things I love about the text, one of the things I love about the teaching of Jesus, it is never superficial and it's never shallow. Sometimes very simple, but it always ascends. Do you all know what I mean by that? It ascends to a greater truth. In other words, Christ never lessens himself or lessens something to prove a point. He always ascends to a greater truth. Even with his disciples, he was continually moving them from a lower level of truth to a higher ascending truth. That's why he would even tell them, there are things yet to tell you, but at this moment, you cannot bear them. Christ always taught an ascending truth. He's teaching ascending truth here. He's trying to get their eyes, so to speak, off of their stomachs, and on to the reality, the higher reality here, the reality of who Christ is. They keep coming around to the same subject. Lord, give us more bread. The Lord of their heart was not the Lord. The Lord of their heart was the physical bread, meeting my physical needs. 
Now notice what he says in verse 32. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven. Okay, now here's making a connection. Verse 31, they're saying that Moses gave them bread from heaven. Jesus says, no, 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 no. It was not Moses that gave you bread. It was my Father who's giving you true bread. Moses didn't give you bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. Now Jesus is beginning to, to square this way. He says, I'm the true bread. That's why I'm the living bread. I am the bread of life. I am who the Father has given. I am the complete satisfaction. I am the completeness. I am the fullness of this. They looked at Moses as doing something grand, and they looked at it and said, well, God's provided. It was a miracle, but Jesus is saying what that was in the field or what that was in the desert. Yes, it was a miracle of God, but what's standing before you now is an even greater miracle. Now you're looking at the miracle of me. That which Jesus says here, that which he turns to and he reminds them of, he's going to use in these remaining verses some of the great statements that he's ever going to make. He's going to say, I am the bread of life. Over the next few weeks, in this chapter alone, we see some of the greatest statements Jesus ever makes regarding himself as being this bread of life, the completeness of that no man comes to me unless the Father draws him. Some of the greatest doctrinal teaching about Jesus and man's need and belief are contained in John chapter number 6. And they really truly begin with this I, the statement of, I am the bread of life. Now notice again, Jesus, he tells them in that, in that verse, verse 32, he said, then Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father gave you the true bread from heaven. Now notice verse 33, and I'm just going to read the, the first part of this. I'm going to stop because I want you to see if this strikes you the way it, stro- it strikes me. For the bread of God is he. For the bread of God is he. Okay, you stop right there. And you reference that back to verse 32, which the Father giveth you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is He. It's really a quite remarkable statement here. Jesus is beginning to tell them that that which is really going to feed you, what is really going to feed you for all of eternity, Moses couldn't give you that. Moses could not provide you what you needed. You needed something much more than that. Only the Father can give true bread from heaven. The bread of God is He. What a strange expression, yet one that could not be more true. The bread of heaven or the bread of God is Christ Himself. In order to take of the bread of life, you must take of Christ Himself. Not a form of Christ, not a a work of Christ, not a teaching of Christ, but Christ Himself. A lot of people don't understand what I just said about taking of Christ himself. They know of Christ. They've heard of Christ. They claim to to be a part of Christ, but they've never taken of Christ as the bread of life. My complete supply, my complete satisfaction, my completeness, my wholeness is in Christ alone. 
When Jesus says that next statement that He makes in verse 35, He is going to say, I am that bread. I am the only one. I am the only way. To take Christ Himself is to come and take Him to yourself. It is to trust Him for your salvation and it is to feed upon Him or you will never have the bread which comes down from heaven. The bread which comes from heaven both gives life and sustains life. When I came to Christ, it was not a temporary sustaining. It was not a temporary filling. It is not a temporary removal of hunger. It is complete satisfaction because I'm no longer hungry because I now have partaken of the bread of life. This bread, all of us, if we're going to be saved, if we're going to be declared as His children, must take of this bread of life personally. I cannot take, for the bread, take the bread of life for my children. I can't take the bread of life for my wife. I can't take the bread of life. It is a personal taking of. Families are not saved just because one person in the household is saved. Each person, Lord, as he deals with them, they must respond and individually repent and believe the gospel and take of Christ as the bread of life for themselves. I can't force feed someone else to take it. I can tell you this morning, I could give away a physical loaf of bread much easier than I could ever give away the spiritual bread of life. If you were to set up a stand somewhere and give people a choice between physical bread, put it in a loaf, whatever you want it to be, or partaking of Jesus Christ, it would be a landslide the other way. More people would take the loaf of bread than they would even consider. What does this mean over on the other side? What do you mean the bread of life is Christ? Our needs, our humanity typically drives us to meet the physical need first. And you say, preacher, why are you saying all this? Because this is going to lead us into what happens in the rest of this chapter. Because man left to himself, please get this, man left to himself will choose the physical bread every single time. If God doesn't do any work in that person, given the choice between the physical bread and the spiritual bread of life, they will take the physical bread every single time. But if God does a work, if God gives them the gift of faith, they will believe and they will partake and they will take Christ for themselves. We've referred to Christ We've referred to Christ many times in lesser terms because it seems more palatable. You speak to many people about Jesus Christ as a bread of life, they don't understand what that means. If you speak to them about take Jesus Christ into your heart, ask Jesus into your heart, they get that. But yet the Bible doesn't speak about taking Jesus Christ into our heart. It talks about receiving him and partaking of him and coming to him as the bread of life. I don't know about you, but it's a lot more powerful to think about Jesus Christ being the bread of life than it is about Jesus asking Jesus into my heart. One of them is dependent on something or someone, and the other one's fully dependent upon him. Complete, complete sustaining. I'm the bread of life. 
For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. He gives life to the world, all those that will come unto him. Now we know he's not talking about every single person because that would be a universal salvation, but he's talking about all types of people. This world is occupied, I don't know if you realize this, this world is filled with people from different nations and different people groups and different cultures. It's a, it's a big world. There's no nation excluded from this invitation. That's what it means. You're not excluded from this. Whether you're American or whether or not you're African or wherever you're Chinese, whatever your culture is, whatever it is, whether you're rich, whether you're poor, Jesus Christ is the bread of life. The call goes out to every single person. Come and take, come and believe, come and trust. That's where the work of God is moving. Now we see that Jesus says, and it seems like he's gotten to them. And I'm using that term very lightly. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Now we know that this isn't a confession because he's going to correct them again. He knows their motives. He knows their heart. They said this not knowing really what they were saying and not really understanding what he meant. Because this text will continue to prove out day, or prove time and time again over the next few weeks. Bread's going to keep coming up. We have the privilege of knowing the end of the story. Jesus knows they're still only after one thing and one thing only. They are after the body needs being met. Their cry was, give us bread, we're hungry. Give us more bread. We want more of this bread. We want more of this everlasting bread that continues to show up. They had no appetite for Christ. You say, how do you know that? Because if they had an appetite and they understood, Jesus would have stopped here, but he continues. And we're, this verse, or this chapter, has 71 verses. And sitting here in verse number 34, he's still telling them, you still don't get it. And he's going to spend the rest of the chapter explaining to them more and more about proving how they don't understand this. Look what Jesus says in verse 35. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. Notice what they're asking for. Give us bread. Give us this bread. Give us this bread. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. Now, to the Jews, to them standing there, this is an insulting statement because Jesus is saying, I'm him. The one you're rejecting, the one ultimately you're going to refuse, I am that Messiah, I am that promise, I am that picture of that manna in the wilderness, I am that living bread. Yet you will not come to me. You will not come unto me. And he says this, him that cometh to me later on, he'll, we'll look at this verse next week, him that cometh to me in verse 37, I will in no wise cast out. We begin dealing with one of these mysteries of God. Jesus keeps telling people to come to him, come to him, come to him, but they can't come to him unless he does something in them. Why does he keep doing this? Again, the mysteries of God. Does Jesus Christ ever turn away anyone that comes unto him? Absolutely not. Has anyone who ever desired Christ been turned away? Absolutely not. 
Does anybody in this church, has this church, do, this, does, do I preach a gospel that says, if you come wanting Christ and you come to, by faith and you come and trust in Him, I believe in Christ, can I look at you and say, no, you can't? Absolutely not. I have never told a single person, you cannot come to Christ. Every person who has a desire to come unto Him, comes unto Him. It's never been for us to say, we're just simply to teach the truth and give the truth. See how the salvation of the Lord works here. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Now that phrase, I am, I am the bread, you could circle the two, the little phrase, I am. Of course, that's a reference to declaration. It's one of the several declarations of Christ linking his deity. We read that in Exodus 3, this morning I told you there'd be a connection there. I'm the God of Abraham, I'm the God of Isaac, I'm the God of Jacob. Jesus is linking his deity and he's linking back that I'm the same God of Abraham, I'm the God of Isaac, I'm the God of Moses, I am God. I am God. And he mentions again that I am that true bread of life. My, I am sufficient to meet every need. I am that true bread of heaven. I am that manna in the wilderness that was a type or a representation of me being the life of the people, of his people in a lifeless world. This Jesus is far greater than Moses. And again, if you think this wasn't insulting to them, you'd be mistaken. For a man to declare himself greater than Moses was to them almost blasphemous. Because Moses would have been their great hero. If you'd have given the, the Jews a, a choice between worshiping Jesus or worshiping Moses, I can tell you it had been a landslide. They would have worshiped Moses. So these words that Jesus is saying, these are not light things. He is telling them truth. Never hunger, never thirst. You know, that draws us back to the woman at the well. You remember that story. Jesus gave similar words to her when he said this. He said, but whosoever drinketh the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Christ becomes a complete source of satisfaction. Fully our satisfaction. I am the bread of heaven. I am the bread of life. Anyone that comes to me shall never hunger. Anyone that comes to me shall never thirst. And then this mysterious statement that Jesus makes. And again, we could study this and we're going to see more about this as we go through. Jesus tells them that the salvation of Christ, it begins, it ends with me. Salvation of Christ, this, he's talking about eternal life here. You'll never hunger, you'll never thirst. He's not talking about physical hunger. He's not talking about physical thirst. He's saying that these, this is an eternal hunger that will be fully satisfied and eternal thirst will be quenched. You will never ever again hunger and thirst for these spiritual truths. But then verse 36, and again, I'm not going to stand here and tell you to completely understand all the mystery workings of God here. 
But he says, but I said unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. Many people today say, if I could just see Jesus with my own eyes, I would believe. The mere sight of seeing Christ bodily will not change the mind of a single individual. They would not say, now I believe. You know what they would do? They would respond with the same mentality that would say, show me another proof. Show me another sign. Here Jesus, the Son of God, the bread of life, the bread of heaven is standing before them. And they say, show me. He says, I'm standing right before you. And you still won't believe. You still have no thirst, no hunger for me. There were multitudes of people that saw Christ They saw his miracles. They even ate the bread. Everyone that ate that physical bread of the miracle. Now, again, I'm not God, so I can't tell you this and be completely certain of this and dogmatic about it. But just because they ate the physical bread when they were fed doesn't mean they're in heaven today. Doesn't mean that at all. They didn't eat that by faith. When they sat down and the bread was brought, they didn't didn't stop and consider that. They just simply ate it because, hey, look, we were hungry and this man has provided us food. That doesn't mean that they came to him in belief. Just seeing Christ with your own eyes is not going to change anything. It's the operation of God. His miracles, those eating of the bread that he provided, his wonder-working hand, yet people still believe not. Faith doesn't come by sight, folks. How many times have we said it? It's, it's, become a, it's become a Christian cliche. Faith is not by sight. Well, we understand that. Then why are we continuing to expect, and people continue to expect to see something, that God's going to do something that our eyes can see it? If you come to Christ today, it's not going to be because you saw something with your eyes. You're going to come to Christ because of faith. You're going to come to Christ because you didn't see you're going to come to Christ not because you could stand out on a, on a sunset night and say, wow, I see the wondrous work of God. Now I believe there's a Messiah. Because for most people, that was just the earth doing what the earth always does. Sure, it's a sunset. It happens every day. Some days it's good, some days it's bad. And guess what? I know it's going to happen. Sun's going to come up tomorrow too, and it's going to be there'll be a sun there'll be a sunrise, and a sunset, and a sunrise, and a sunset. Some people look at the works of God that we look at, and they say that's nothing more than just the Earth doing what it should. You hear statements like, "Mother Nature wasn't kind to us today." There's no such thing as Mother Nature. She doesn't exist. Every drop of rain comes from the hand of God. The fact that there's still enough oxygen on this planet comes from the work of God. The fact your oxygen supply didn't dry up last night. It's not being held together by Mother Nature. It's not being held together by science. It's being held together by God. But seeing a sunset is not going to save you. Standing on a mountaintop is not going to save you. Seeing the trees and seeing the beautiful fall that takes place, it's not going to save you, even though you say that's a work of God. It's only when you come to Christ and say Christ is not just for my physical. Christ is the, is the, the satisfaction of the greatest need I have, which is I need a Savior from my sin. 
I began by saying Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He came into the world to save you. He came into the world to save you who were once lost in your sin, and now you have been made alive in Christ. Seeing is not believing. Well, we understand today that when we do believe, we do see. Now when I see those beautiful works, I say it's the hand of God, but it's so much more than that. There's a Savior behind it. My salvation. It opens our eyes. What was previously hidden has now clearly seen. The main principal work of God, which is well-pleasing in His sight and, was with, and without it is impossible to please Him, is belief. Go all the way back to the question. They asked the question, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? This is the work of God that you believe on him. Isn't it interesting? He connects, this is the work of God, believe on him. This is the work of God, ye believe on him. All of it is the work of God. The work of God is that you believe. His work, again, the great mysteries of God. Humanly speaking, we want to say that can't be, that can't add up. Doesn't make sense. The depraved mind says, gotcha, contradiction. The enlightened mind says, there's no contradiction there. The enlightened mind says, amen. A child of God says amen to that. Someone who's still maybe lost and undone and still, they're still trying to figure out what can I do to work the work of God doesn't understand when Jesus says, this is the work of God that you believe. The fact you believe today is a work of God. See, we want God to work one way. We want God to work according to our standards. We want God to do it our way, do it our things. Jesus says, this belief's even my work. And you say, but pastor, I don't understand. Then why doesn't he do the work in them? Why would he tell them in verse 36, okay, if this is a work of God, but you don't believe on me, you've seen me. Why doesn't he do that work in them? And I'll give you the answer I give every time it's asked. I don't know. But the bigger question isn't that. The bigger question is, is why did he do the work in you? See, we always want to worry about what he's not doing with someone else instead of saying, why do I see this this morning? Why do I understand this? Matter of fact, why am I even accepting it? Eight out of ten Baptist churches will refuse what I just told you. Baptist churches will say it. I'm a Baptist by conviction, but I'm telling you, Baptists have moved, for the most part, away from what used to be taught and preached in every pulpit in this country. They would have preached it that way. But your salvation is all the work of God and that God is sovereign in salvation. Say God is sovereign in salvation in a lot of Baptist churches and you will never be invited to come back again. He's sovereign in everything else, but he can't touch salvation. Show me chapter and verse where he gives that up. You get 12, 13 questions and 12 questions about God's sovereignty and how the world works, how things take place. Every Baptist believes in it. Say, is God sovereign in the salvation of man? Nope, that's where it stops. So he's only 99.9% .9 sovereign. 
He's either fully or he's not. The greatest comfort I have is knowing that the work of God is to believe on him, that he did that work in me. That's the greatest comfort that I have today. It's the greatest comfort I can give you because it's the most pleasing work. It's the most acceptable to God. Why? Because it's his work. How could a work of a sinful, depraved, wretched person like us be pleasing to God in any way, shape, or form? It couldn't be. Jesus, again, we'll get into this, and we're going to start next week on a, pa- on a group of passages here. I'm telling you, if you think it's going to get easier, it's not. It's going to get more difficult because Jesus is going to put his finger right on the, the point of the matter, which is the inability, the inability of man to work these things. Again, it's not by sight, it's by faith. I don't see Christ today because I see him with my eyes. I see him by faith. And that's what Jesus is going to try to point them to. So next week, we'll begin the message with that verse, verse 37. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will no wise cast out. Meditate on that verse over this week, and I think it will be a help to you as we come into this, and you'll understand exactly what Jesus is going to do in the teaching here. Okay? Let's go ahead and stand, if you would.